Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Steve Eisman coming into the studio this morning, and the first thing he says to me, I've got a joke. It's about CEOs. Will you let me tell it? And I'm like, should we do this at the top of the conversation? Should we do this? It's, it's clean and it's good. So I'm going to let Steve Eisman do his joke. Eisman Group, Newberger Berman, Senior Portfolio Manager. Good morning to you, Steve. Good morning. I, I didn't know you were a comedian as well. So let's talk about it. Give us the joke off the top. What is it? All right. So the joke is a uh, guy becomes the CEO of a company, reports to work on the first day, has lunch with the old CEO, and the old CEO says, I, I got a gift for you gives him a box, and in the box he opens it, there's three envelopes, and they're numbered one, two, and three. And he says, don't open them until you have your first crisis, then open up the first envelope. So he says, okay, he puts the box in a drawer. Three years go by, he's got his first crisis, doesn't know what to do, he remembers the envelope. So he opens up the first envelope, he reads it, and it says, blame your predecessor. And he says, genius. So he does it, <laughs> and crisis averted. Believe me, we've all seen this. Yeah. And then two more years go by, there's another crisis. He remembers the envelope. So he opens up the second envelope, and it says, take a huge restructuring charge. And it goes, genius. <laughs> and he takes a huge restructuring charge, and crisis averted. And another three years go by, doesn't know what to do because it's another crisis. So he opens up the third envelope, and it says, prepare three envelopes. That oh, is fantastic. That is phenomenal. Love that. All right, so who are you trolling? That's like, yeah, I was going to say, can we cut to the chase? Yeah. Which, which of your lungs right now is, is this the analog to? Steve, it's you've got good. to answer that. I, no, it's no. good because it, it really strikes close to home. How many times have you seen that? Well, we're all wondering, as Lisa points out, who you're talking about. Which company yeah, are we well, focused that, on Yeah, well, that now? I'm not going to say. Well, okay. <laughs> but you are. Although I will say that I saw, I, at Newberger, I saw, I saw a CEO of a company that I'm sure, and I won't mention it because it's not fair. It's okay. And, I, and as can. I was and I was thinking, and, and as the CEO was presenting, and it wasn't a great presentation, I'm thinking, this guy could use, really use the three envelopes. <laughs> Is this, are we talking Elon Musk in no, which envelope? No. <laughs> Let's talk about Elon Musk shall we Tesla sure. high profile short for many people Steve it's a short that you had and no longer have how are you thinking about the company at the moment what made you cover the short other than just getting your face ripped off I imagine if you well, were getting your face it, ripped off sort of, of keeps you up at night <laughs> of course you know, everybody has a threshold of pain mine's pretty high but when you look at when a stock starts to go crazy on you look at it's hard to go crazy because the deliveries were better than expected they're certainly better than expected than I expected but you know, you start to read things about how, you know, in 2032, the company will make, you know, $3,000 per share or whatever. You know, there's no way to argue against that because it's 10 years from now or 20 years from now. So, you know, when, when, the, when the narrative of stock starts to become like that, the best thing to do is at least to walk away. Steve, anyone that's familiar with your work knows how much homework you do, how well thought out every single position is. This isn't just done on a whim. But are there lessons to be learned when there is a popular short like the Tesla short? For someone like yourself, is that a red flag? Is that something you want to get involved in? Is that something you walk away from at the moment and think? Well, I, I'm, not, future, I'm not. I'm, I'm not afraid of getting involved with shorts that are heavily shorted. I don't like to construct an entire short portfolio of heavily shorted <laughs> stocks, but if if I really believe in something, I'll get I'll get involved with it. But you have to be careful. So you you were made famous by the big short, right? But as the era of short, uh, shorting kind of ended, and I'm wondering because another of your shorts, Zillow, uh, back in October has surged you know, more than 60% since then, and a lot of people are saying perhaps the fundamentals are getting disconnected from uh, the market action, or it's very right. hard It's just funny about Zillow. I'm still short Zillow. Um, 
What's, what's very strange about that short is that when they report third quarter numbers, you know, if you looked at it carefully, uh, the fundamentals actually deteriorated, and yet the narrative was positive. So that does sometimes make a stock oh, difficult. But Lisa raises a good point here, Steve. Yeah. Just how much the price action has become divorced from the fundamentals. As you point out, you look at the numbers coming out of Zillow, and it justifies in your mind a short, but then the price action is just doing something completely I, different. I'm willing to stick with something if I think the fundamentals are actually deteriorating or fundamentally deteriorating. The problem with the, with the Tesla short was the fundamentals started to improve. And, and you know, then, yeah. then, then all you are left with is a valuation short. And one rule I have is I never short a stock just because of valuation. Because in an age of both of disruption and free money, right. that's a recipe for disaster. Well, that's where I want to go. I mean, the cardinal rule of shorts is you short a lousy company in a lousy group in a lousy market. That's pretty easy to do. Right now, you've got a central bank strategy massively pushing against a short belief. Does does long short just walk away from short until Chairman Powell changes his tune? I, look, I still think you can be long short. I think you have to have a very long bias right now, which I do. I think you can be selectively short individual names. Like, you know, for example, I'm short a stock called Ad Talum, which is a what? for Ad Talum. It's a for-profit education company. It used to be called DeVry. Oh, uh, yes. But they sold DeVry, the actual part of the company called DeVry for a dollar, plus assumption of debt, which tells you how much I got DeVry my was worth. on the wall from DeVry. <laughs> but, 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 but what's left is a nursing school and uh, a medical school. Right. I, I have no ethical issues about what DeVry is doing. And the biggest part of the company is nursing. And the, the short thesis very simply is that over the last couple of years, there's been new entrants of nonprofit schools that are doing exactly the same thing as DeVry for half the price. Two other names that come to mind regarding your positioning, HSBC Standard Chartered. Yes. What are things looking like right now for you? I'm still short them. Um, are we connecting those shorts more to China than we are to Brexit? How are you thinking about that? This has got nothing issues? to do with Brexit. Nothing to do Zero. with Brexit. It's, it's, it's that hung, hung, HSBC is about, off the top of my head, 30% Hong Kong. Uh, Standard Charter is like 20% Hong Kong. Um, and Hong Kong's in a recession, and so they'll have credit issues, period. Have you ever been less short? Stocks, though. I mean, you're talking about specific names, but you said, you know, you are you've got a very long bias. Right. And so I'm wondering, you know, the sort of longs to short ratio, the sort of overall. This is about as long as I get. Okay. I'm about 65 percent net long right now. And that's as long as you get. That's about as long as I can go. Okay. And how long have you been the longest you can go? Well, late last year. What's the biggest mistake rookies make? Shorting. There's a lot of people out there. They don't believe in the Fed strategy. They believe the Fed's going to make. John, are we modeling one or two rate cuts right now? One to two. One to two. Okay, fine. Someday that's going to end. And everybody's going to want to go, okay, I'm going to get back on the short bandwagon. What's the rookie mistake in shorting? I think the mistake people make is that because they think that it's wrong for the Fed to have a free money policy, therefore they should short <clears throat> stocks. It's because you think the Fed's wrong. <laughs> so what? They're the Fed. That's something, you, you Steve, could, you so could think many what people you have want. struggled with. But so many people have struggled with this. Well, well, I've struggled Marty with Zweig it didn't struggle with this. Marty Zweig, you know, don't fight the Fed. Well, but does that, does that sort of change the equation for specific names, too? Well, they, what, what you would need, if you were going to fight the Fed, I and mean, look, I, I did fight the Fed in 2007 and eight. 
Um, and but, but what you what, what you had then was deteriorating credit. So if you're going to fight the Fed, you need deteriorating credit quality. The problem is that credit quality in the United States is perfect. There's no problems anywhere. Which is why you like the U.S. banks. One reason. But I only like the large banks. I, I, I think investing in, in anything outside of the large banks, with very few exceptions, is a waste of time. Because they can't spend the money on no. technology. Steve Eisman, thank you so much. Steve, He's thanks. Lot to talk Good to about. see you, Steve. And from his appearances with Bloomberg Surveillance today, I'm sure we'll write a whole bunch up. We should cut that joke at the top. I was about to say. And replay it a few times. Yeah, I mean, it, it was good. I did like that. I think I did like that. We should we should play it when we talk about certain companies yeah. and what they're doing. You could, you could play that joke for years. We, we, years. we will. I, think we that, will. I mean, I it's perfect. When are you going to tell us about which company you were talking about? Come on. No, I won't do it. Steve Eisen. Steve's walking out the studio. <laughs> interview of the day on these odd times in the markets. We'll look short term, we'll look long term as well. And Paul Sweeney, we can do this with the gentleman, the only one we can speak to who actually knew fluidly how to use a Bunker Ramo 2210. <laughs> Douglas Cass joined some series a few years ago, Glickenhaus at Putnam, other venues, looking at individual security selection. Doug Cass, good morning. Um, just to, to, to get to the perspective of a bunker from a few years ago, this, folks, is pre-Bloomberg, is, well, have you ever seen a parabolic move of a company of the substance of Tesla? We've seen them, but have we really ever seen it with something as tangible as Tesla? Well, Tesla is almost a metaphor for the market. Um, the market cap's $145 billion. It's bigger than Costco. It's twice as big as Cat. It's three times the size of GM, six times the size of Kellogg. When it is trading over 800 bucks, I think on Tuesday, 50 million shares of Tesla traded at an average price of 750 That equates to a nominal value yeah. of $35 billion, or one-third its market cap. After, I'm thinking about that. Yeah. I mean, Tesla may be the future... And the company has obviously established first mover advantage in autos and batteries, but the shares right. are dramatically overpriced. And um, as you said, its recent ascent radically eclipses previous speculative yeah, urges yeah. of past cycles. Paul wants to jump in, but Doug Cass, quickly here. How are you positioned this morning in your trading accounts? You know, we talk a lot about price targets and whether we're bearish or bullish, and we don't spend enough time generally talking about conviction levels. And this is a period of time in which my conviction level is low. Uh, in the last few weeks, we've gotten a taste of a new regime of volatility, not only in Tesla, but in the market as a whole. So all markets are not created equal. So, Doug, and just on the Tesla, we're down about 10.5% here, below 800. So the volatility around the Tesla shares <laughs> continues. So, Doug, are you surprised at the resiliency in the equity markets in the face of, I would say, the, you know, the latest exogenous shock, which is the coronavirus and the impact that might have on global GDP? Are you surprised in the resiliency of the equity markets? I am not really. Um, I'm certainly not surprised about the volatility, which I've been expecting. And I, I just think as we look at 2020, I think that the contour of the stock market is going to be importantly influenced and shaped by both profits and politics. And I think we'll probably see a lot of surprises in both ends. So, Doug, with, with your 
loads of experience. How do you typically position yourself in an election year, particularly one which could be particularly uh, contentious? Well, as I said, not all markets are created equal. Uh, we shouldn't have convection levels the same at all levels of the market, and the same applies to the election. Um, there's a great deal of uncertainty. Um, I think what I have learned is to expect the unexpected. Um, just look at 2019. No one looked for a 30% rise in the S&P. No yeah. one, there was a universal view that interest rates, let's say the 10-year, was going to a 3.5% yield, and just right. the opposite occurred. So I think this year could be an out-of-the-vix thinking and a mean reversion in valuation stocks yeah. and profits. Uh, Doug Cass with his folks at Seabreeze Partners. He'll be with us for a generous amount of time in this half hour. Doug, I've got to go to what sticks out like a sore thumb, and everybody, you know, you're out on Twitter, and you're the pinata, and you're long. Oh, quiet. I don't want to go there, Doug. I mean, I've been medicated. you just given us the division title. Yes, he <laughs> Doug, I mean, did Sandy call you up and just say, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread? Palmer said it was the stupidest deal he's ever heard. You give a franchise <laughs> player away. Me. To okay. two un unproven, just because of the luxury tax. Okay, we're going to rip up the script here, folks. We got to, we got to, we got to. Let Stevie go and buy the Red Sox instead of the Mets. Uh, well, I'm not sure he's buying the Mets <laughs> or the Knicks. Uh, Doug Cass, folks, Wisconsin, Florida, next to a guy named Palmer, used to throw the orb for the Baltimore Orioles as well. We are honored to speak with Mr. Palmer one day. One of my true heroes as a kid, Doug Cass. Jim Palmer says this was a bad trade. Awful trade. I'll get him on the phone next time I'm on. You're killing me. I, you, just, you, know, <laughs> you know it was. You just don't want to face reality. Back to the market. We say, yeah, <laughs> good morning, 1061 FM Boston. And we're all in. <laughs> I got my black arm, and I'm, uh, trust me. Doug Kess, I want to go to what's so different for you, which is a five-year, six-year, ten-year conviction on Amazon. Let's start with the idea, how rare is it for you to have a big company long-term conviction like that? I think that Amazon will trade at 5000 a share uh, by 2023. Um, in the last 10 years, there's only been two companies that have exceeded 20% organic growth, Google and Amazon. And their moats, Tom, are just getting deeper and deeper. The concern about regulatory uh, reform and how it would impact the P&L uh, is no longer a factor. And their moat is getting deeper and deeper and more impenetrable. Um, I said to you about six or nine months ago that I expected a hockey stick in earnings growth far yep. in excess, 10 to 20 percent greater in 2020 to 22 than the consensus forecast for, um, on the sell side of, right. with regard to earnings. And I suspect that they're about nine months ahead, ahead of my uh, timetable based upon the last quarter, which is $2 a share, better than expectations. And indeed estimates rose by 15%. Right. The reason Cass comes on is because he knows I'm doing the logarithms on the Bloomberg on what he's saying. <laughs> These are outlandish phrases by Mr. Cass. No, they're not. If you take the long-term regression of Amazon folks back to the horrific bottom of 01, you get out to a Cassian 4,008, no, 5,133 at the end of 23. So, <laughs> Doug, this is yep. important. The math works. Doug's outrageous call, Paul Sweeney, 
is the linear log regression yep. of the stock. He's stating the <laughs> obvious, and boy, is he alone in doing that. Interesting, Doug. I mean, you, you brought up the regulatory overhang for not just Amazon, but some of these other big technology companies like Facebook and, and Google. Uh, this is an alphabet-free studio, so we call it Google. So, But for Amazon in particular, Doug, why do you think the regulatory risk is not that material? Um, I think that the, the more regulation placed on Amazon the more it will increase their moat and their market share. Um, they're such first-mover advantage now, no one's, no one's even in the same league as they are. So it would actually be self-defeating. Interesting. You can see the stock. It's amazing that yeah. Jeff Bezos sold another $2 billion worth of stock, and the stock is up $50 in the last, in the last two days. <laughs> Interesting. So the, it's, it's and by stock- the way, hey, Thomas, Thomas, Yes. <laughs> Speaking of linear log regression, I teach um, Robert Schiller's course at the Yale School of Management, yeah. and I actually spent three hours on that last year. This is important, folks. This is go to logs. Doug, all of us, Paul Sweeney, Douglas Cass, and I remember when the Securities Exchange Commission was afraid to use logs publicly because they thought it would confuse the public. And yet this is what adults do in the market because the core equation is an exponential function, FE equals PV1 plus R to the T. Doug Cass, what's the biggest mistake in extrapolation people make? I mean, you're extrapolating out three weeks or three months or even, out, may I suggest, five years uh, with Amazon. Amazon, what's the biggest extrapolation mistake investors make? I think, um, oddly, um, the extrapolation of parabolic moves is a major trading and investment mistake. And I'm thinking, obviously, of Tesla. Um, you know, Tesla was has Tesla started the year at four hundred eighteen dollars a share and traded to $900 now. Tesla's not going to automatically brush our teeth. They're not, it's not going to walk our dog. It's not going to heal the sick. It's not going to cure the blind. It's not going to solve global warning, warming. It's not going to deliver world peace. Um, when you have parabolic moves and you extend that, and traders um, buy the relative strength, we have to remember that parabolic moves almost always return to the point of breakout, and we're seeing that this morning. There's also another important lesson. It's not your question specifically. Uh, I see Tesla down another $60. It's an important lesson about short selling. Um, I, as a matter of practice, as you know, have as a basic tenet of my short selling to avoid any stock with a large short interest relative to the average daily trading volume and or the float. For example, Tesla has 28 million shares short, 140 million share float, which is really overstated because probably 30 million of that is in Ron Barron's hands yeah. and other law- committed long-term invest- investors and cult members. So um, that's a dangerous thing. And look, I lived through Robert Wilson's short squeeze of Resorts International. Mm-hmm. I have the scars on my back right. shorting stocks of the dot-com era a bit early. Yep. They worked out fine, but they sure were painful. Yeah. for a period of time. Doug Hess with the series and of course in Florida and uh, is better than good. We protect the copyright of all of our guests. If you want Mr. Cass's literature, you know where to go uh, for it. John Hudak with us, and this is important. There's a lot of punditry on politics and that, but Hudak 
is with Brookings. He's with their governance study group. And he takes very seriously the processes of all this punditry and politics. He joins us now. John, you know, we knew we were going to have you. That was before the Iowa blow up. I mean, talk about a failed process. John Farrell mentioned it earlier. Is modern technology and voting, is it officially dead? Well, I don't think it's officially dead. You know, there's a lot of contractors out there who are looking to get party money, so I I wouldn't declare it dead yet. But I think this is a lesson that a lot of Americans look at, and they say, if our systems can get hacked by Russia, if our systems can fail... I think they look back to a paper ballot system or the old metal voting booths with the curtain and see that as the good old days. I mean, John, I don't know what they do in England. Here, the coolest thing is you'd go voting day and your father or mother would pick you up and you could hit the little tabby things in the metal booth and the curtain closed. And you could, did they have that? When I used to vote in the UK, I'd just go and sign a piece of paper, just a little tick. With a quill? Next to the name. Not How did you do it, Lisa? Did you have a machine, I think Lisa? you've got the wrong person here. I think it's Tom that used to turn up with a quill, not me. I would say, I, oh, I, you guys I, are really wound up today. I will say there were, there were little um, like levers that you pulled, and then that yeah, big thing that you kind of pulled down. Look, and you I mean, know what? John, they still are, have that now. we have a guest. John, are, you going, are, we, John Udak, are we going back to that? Uh, you know, I, we're probably not going back to that, but I think the nostalgia around that and the security that people felt around that is going to make them seriously question these new technological advances that people are promising will be flawless and secure. And I, I think it's going to be a serious conversation within the party about what, uh, what the future holds and what kind of backup systems in particular we'll have to avoid uh, chaos. John, is it the end of the caucus? Uh, I I would hope it's the end of the Iowa caucuses. I mean, these are outdated. They uh, force a system in place where not everyone can participate. To see them on TV or to see them in person, uh, they're foolish looking. And I think the party needs to recognize that uh, this is not the direction of American politics right now. And it certainly shouldn't be its future. Been a lot of criticism of the party in the last couple of days, for that matter, the last few months about how they order the states and who goes to vote first, whether you should do primaries and have no caucuses anymore. John, is there going to be a serious rethink at the very top of the party about how to achieve the best outcome, come up with the best candidate on a national level and stop playing around in New Hampshire and Iowa? You know, it's not just the past few months that that criticism has been happening, and it's happened for both parties. Uh, I think if you asked me five or six years ago if that serious conversation was going to happen, uh, I would say no. But what we saw after 2016 is the Democratic Party responding by saying, we need to make some reforms. And there were some serious reforms that were made at the state level and at the national level about how to select a president. And I think uh, after this election, you're going to see that same conversation broadened to be more encompassing about more issues. John, there's also a question about the narrative emerging from the Iowa caucus. First of all, it's one of dysfunction. But second of all, it's the lack of a response to President Trump, who has basically going to herald the economy in his reelection campaign, which we saw last night, the State of the Union address. What what should Democrats do in, in order to counter that? Or, or how important is it for them to get that narrative together? It's critically important for them to get that narrative together. Uh, what we have is a president who has a lot of economic data to brag about, and that is a president's prerogative. If the economy is doing well, um, talk about it. And, you know, part of the reason 
Republicans did so poorly in 2018 was that the president talked about immigration and not a booming economy. But the economic recovery and the, the, the continued economic success has not touched everyone equally. And there are a lot of people who are struggling yeah. out there. And that's the message for Democrats. And they haven't crafted it properly yet. John, let's take the punditry and bring it over to your serious political science. Mr. Carville who I adore. I've worked with him another time. James Carville of Louisiana says, I'm scared to death for the Democratic Party. That's a moderate voice. Is anyone listening to the Carvilles of the Democratic Party? Well, I will say there are a lot of moderate voices who are saying that, who are uh, scared to death of progressives, who are scared to death of what that might mean for the future of the party. Uh, I'm not ready to pronounce the Democratic Party dead. Uh, but what I do think is that there are these moments uh, in a party's history in which they face real challenges or real question marks. And uh, we don't know what the future of the Democratic Party will hold. It could be that a, a progressive is nominated and that progressive wins, and then we reset everything and say progressive politics is the wave of the future. Or that progressive loses to Donald Trump, and we say progressivism is dead, uh, you know, long live uh, centrism. Depending on the outcome of this election will determine uh, quite a bit about what the future of both the Democratic and Republican Party will be. But, John, we've seen the outcome of things like this again and again and again. This comes back to a question that I've seen being asked in the United Kingdom constantly, a question of the left. Does it just have to come down to a purity test? Is it just about maintaining, holding on to the moral high ground? Is that the hill you want to die on? If you really want to make change, you've got to govern. And to govern, you've got to win. And, John, from what I see right now, it's not a party that's putting themselves in a position to really make the massive effort needed to win. You know, I think you're absolutely right about that. The purity tests that exist are ones that alienate voters and, and, and purposefully alienate voters. Uh, and I think you're 100% right. In order to govern, you have to win. But also, in order to govern, you have to govern. And what we have right now are candidates in this race, uh, both, you know, some centrists and, and certainly some on the left, who are putting plans out there that will never pass the United States Congress. And what worries me as someone who studies governance is the conversation is never extended to say, this is the ideal, but here's the path we're going to uh, go through to get there. Elizabeth Warren has tried this a little bit to say, if we can't have the perfect, here's our alternative. John. And she's been slammed for this. John, it's, it raises a really important point in exactly where I wanted to go, which is what proposals have you heard either out of President Trump or the Democrats that you think are feasible, doable, that markets should be taking uh, more into account? You know, I think uh, for Elizabeth Warren and for some of the other centrist candidates, they've talked about how difficult... Uh, health care is in the United States and how they need to work across the aisle, that they're not no. going to get uh, the Republican Senate to sign on to Medicare for all. And that's something that is realistic. It's something that, uh, you know, markets don't have to think about Medicare for all because Medicare for all is not going to happen after the 2020 election, no matter who's president. But there's a lot of variation in what all those right. alternatives are. John Hudak, thank you so much with Brookings.
Uh, why don't you bring in Francisco Bonds, Lisa? I mean, this guy is just like awesome. It's that gift for Lisa. That's nice <laughs> no, of you. No, it's just like, <laughs> well, it is a know. gift for me. She was Honestly, excited about it, it wasn't it is, she? It's it nice is. It's, it's a very well, exciting it time in oil. You're looking right now at oil prices uh, rebounding up uh, 3% after absolutely being clobbered with a lot of people saying that there was a secular shift in the entire crude market. Francisco Blanche of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, head of Global Commodities, thank you so much for being with us. I just would love to get your sense uh, right now of where we are, the biggest one-day rally since December. Is this the beginning of some sort of revival of oil prices? Hi, uh, thanks for, uh, for having me. Uh, look, I mean, I, I think a lot of it depends on how China evolves from here. Uh, we've, uh, we've laid out three scenarios, a base case, a major China slowdown scenario, and a global contagion scenario for, for the coronavirus. But, uh, but the, the base case, we haven't really changed our numbers. We still, we still look for $62 in average for Brent and 57 for WTI for the year. Uh, and like I said, I haven't, haven't moved the forecasts, um, partly because uh, our economists think that the, uh, that the uh, um, China slowdown is going to be a one-quarter uh, issue. So uh, as long as that remains the case, this is a, a good buying opportunity for commodity markets. Obviously, the risk is that that uh, um, the uh, the situation in China doesn't stabilize, in which in which case you may have a major slowdown or, or worse, a pandemic. In which case, obviously, uh, you know you, you would get hit pretty hard on in terms of uh, oil market would get hit harder. Yeah. But that that's really the, the story here. I mean, demand could really swing by a million barrels a day, or about one percent of global. Uh, of global uh, demand. So that's, that's the issue here. A buying opportunity. I'm wondering how the dollar factors in, into this. Uh, Jane Foley of Rabobank just telling us she expects the dollar to continue to strengthen. How much does that pressure commodities and does that factor into your call at all? Um, it, it is it is a factor, no question. And, and remember, the dollar um, ha- actually uh, weakened a little bit against some of the European currencies. Um, as rates came down, but now rates are going up, obviously, again, as, as the U.S. economy, to your point earlier, is, is really, really humming. Um, so it, it's a factor, but I, I, do think that, uh, I do think that ultimately uh, we were in the early stages of a global recovery uh, a month and a half ago, uh, driven by the U.S.-China trade deal, and, and also, importantly, by the massive easing uh, that the Federal Reserve has given us, as well as many central banks. We, we've had, we have three cuts last year by the Fed, and we also had a big balance sheet reversal. I think we talked about this in the past, that the, the balance sheet contraction was a massive tail, a massive headwind for the economy. Now with the Fed expanding its balance sheet and, um, and cutting rates, we have a huge tailwind uh, coupled with whatever else other central banks are doing. So, so that's why risk assets are so excited. Um, and, and ultimately, this will come down to commodities as well. But we do need China, we do need emerging markets to, to uh, see strong consumption. Francisco, as you point out, we've been in the early stages of a recovery. That recovery was not secured, not in Europe, not in Asia for that matter either. If it's really a one-quarter event, what gives you guys the confidence that we come out the other side in this V-shaped recovery when the situation was not secure to begin with? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not. I'm not saying it, it will be. I'm not a virologist, so I can't. I can't really make that call. I mean, I've just laid out the three. No, just Francisco. Just based on the disruptions yeah. that you see to supply chains right now, the sudden stop to large chunks of the Chinese economy right now, I agree with you. We shouldn't get into the medical issues. We'll leave that to the doctors. But as things stand right now, what gives you that confidence? Well, look, I mean, I, one of the one of the big issues that that we had in the past eighteen months is that inventories around the world came down a lot. And they came down a lot because once you start playing around with tariffs, people s- slow down their purchases. If you look at uh, if you look at where global trade growth was running uh, in in uh, seventeen and eighteen, it was running around five percent year in year. 
following years of growth of 2 or 3% then basically last year, global trade shut down completely. Uh, we had uh, essentially a contraction uh, because of the large increase in U.S. tariffs. And, and now uh, this year, we just, need a, we just need to see an inventory restocking cycle um, because consumption is strong, because labor growth is strong, because uh, the, the, the service economy is still doing right. well. So, so I, I think we need to bring those goods, right. and service, those goods to, to the economy. Now, longer term, for sure, to your point, you're going to have these disruptions in supply chains, and this is going to change uh, the, the uh, CapEx cycle. So, and, and we argued that in some of our pieces. We will see a restocking cycle, but not a CapEx cycle under, un, until there is clarity as to where this thing is going. Francisco so, Bunch, we've got to leave it there. Thank you so much. Thanks, Francisco. appreciate this morning with Bank of America. Right now, Lindsay Piegza with us. She writes brilliantly for Stiefel. And what I love about her latest work, Dr. Piegza, says moderate growth as expected. Lindsay, congratulations on a middle road here. How have you adjusted your moderate growth view given this morning's data and given the serious Chinese issues of the last two weeks? Well, I think moderate is sort of the new normal for 2020. But we do have to put it in perspective that moderate is, is not great. Uh, the bar of expectations has been lowered so dramatically that it seems the market is celebrating even mediocrity at this point. Keep in mind that 2% is really the bare minimum that we should expect from the economy, assuming 1% gains from population, 1% gains from productivity. And we're also just achieving that bare minimum with bloated government balance sheets and extremely low rates. So my concern is that moderate growth is here but is it here to stay, or does the economy lose momentum as we move further into 2020? Lindsay, I'm just not sure how many people are interested in the January data right now. It's just a rush to show me February. Just show me what February looks like for the global economy. Lindsay, how much can we read into the January economic well, data worldwide? You're being, you're being cruel and unusual to Lindsay because it's February 5th. How are we supposed to look into February? On I'm February? just saying. To read through saying. in terms of the coronavirus's impact and the, the slowdown. That's the big question. That's the focus of pretty much everyone, I think. Lindsay, your thoughts? Right. So, so, so the market is looking for some clean data and saying how much of this is just a temporary blip because of this coronavirus and the fear of the spread as opposed to fundamental weakness. And I do think it's very difficult to parse this out. But what we can see is this declining trend that was well established before the first coronavirus. We saw momentum in the U.S. economy slowing. We saw the consumer, yes, still out in the marketplace spending, but spending at a noticeably slower clip. And so I do expect those trends, once we get clean data, excluding the impact of the coronavirus, we do expect that trend to continue into 2020. And I think we, we've seen that with some breaking news around Macy's closing stores, slower manufacturing data producers being very concerned that outside of the coronavirus, again, global growth, global demand is not on extremely steady footing as we look out to February and more importantly, beyond. Median estimate year end from the economists that we track on Wall Street, Lindsay, 180, 1.8% for 2020. That's real GDP for 2020 for the US economy. Lindsay, what are you modeling at the moment? What are you looking for? Well, I think 1.8 for an annual GDP growth is, is reasonable. It's, uh, it's continuing with that loss of momentum. I would say a longer-term trend for the domestic economy is closer to 1.5%. The Fed's a little me? more optimistic at 1.9%. Again, what we're, what we're seeing is that there is a lack of fundamental growth 
in the domestic economy. And in fact, what we're doing is increasingly relying on non-traditional supports from the Fed and okay. the federal government. Are, are you modeling sub 4% current nominal GDP? I think that's very reasonable. Absolutely. How, is that poli- okay, but Lindsay, you're great at this. Is this politically acceptable in this nation, Republican or Democrat? Can, can a, any politician move forward assuming sub 4% animal spirit? I, I think so. I, I think the expectation of the average market participant or, or nay, the, the average American has come down so dramatically that 2% real GDP, uh, even one and a half, let's round up to 2% real GDP, is good enough. Good enough. That's the new metric for the economy. Is it good enough to get by? We're not looking for great. We're not looking for a stellar boomer economy. Now the expectation is, is it just good enough? Lindsay, what's the line between stall speed and Goldilocks? Ooh, that's a very fine line. And my bigger concern when we talk about the economy losing momentum is not that we fall into recession, but as you point out, we go into that stall motor, what I like to call a non-accelerating economy. And that would be less than 1%. And we're not that far away from that very clear danger zone. Because if we do get to less than 1%, there's going to be an even larger reliance on non-traditional, non-organic metrics to continue to perpetuate growth, meaning we're going to rely more and more on government spending, more and more on lower rates, and it's going to be increasingly difficult, if not impossible, for then organic momentum to get us back into a state of longer-term prosperity. And so what we could see is perpetual growth below 1% for 5, 10, 15 years. Lindsay, is the Fed going to sit there and accept that? Exactly. That's right where I wanted to go. What's Fed policy off of your call? Look, the Fed has been forecasting perpetual 2% GDP, and they double down on their commitment to getting prices back to, not near, but back to 2%. And so I do think that as the data continues to underperform, they have backed themselves into a corner, and they're going to need to take action sooner than later. I don't think it's, it's unreasonable to expect two additional right. 25 basis point moves within the uh, the coming months. Okay, do they have the fiscal space to attach to that? I mean, if you're running a trillion-dollar deficit, do you goose it out to $1.3, $1.4 trillion to assist in your double rate cut? Why not? The, the Fed is not concerned about oh, growing come on, the balance Come on, Lindsay, it's a free lunch. I mean, I mean, what's the price of your really important analysis of sub-2% forward? There's got to be a well, There's got to be a price to it. There, there is a price, but it's a longer-term consequence that the Fed is not going to concern themselves with near-term. Their near-term mandate is getting inflation back on track. And so whether that means growing the balance sheet back to four and a half, five and a half, what's six trillion among friends? That's how they're going to sell it. They're going to say, look, we need to get the economy back on track. This is how we do it. We can continue to hold these securities. We don't have to mark to market. Uh, we can hold these securities to maturity and okay. let the cards uh, lay where they will longer term. This has been fabulous. We'll have this out on podcast, folks. Dr. Piezo with Stiefel. Uh, just really, really important there on a, on a view of how you get to a sub 2%. Call Lindsay. Thank you so much this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.